This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Coming to you live from a radio tower near you, studying the intersections of video games and science. This is Pokey Science. Well, 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 welcome everyone to an episode of Pokey Science, a podcast chat fest where an interdisciplinary group of Pokemon enthusiasts gather around to talk about science and culture in the Pokemon world. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ray, an indigenous American scientist, artist, and Pokey fan. And which other co-host am I joined by today? Uh, so it's Madison. I, <clears throat> I don't know what I am, just uh, here to have a great time. <laughs> Um, hi guys, uh, my name is Kirsten. Uh, I'm a Kirsten Verster. I'm a postdoc at uh, at Stanford University, studying uh, insects declines and abundances over time uh, using genomics. So I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm also a big Pokemon fan. I'm kind of the quintessential nerd of the department, is my guess. Um, and I'm so super happy to be here. So hi guys. So along with our co-host today, we are joined by a guest who I will turn the mic over to right now. Thanks so much, Dr. Ray. Uh, my name is Austin oh my Weidel. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a fifth year PhD student um, in environmental engineering. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about the intersection of uh, biogeochemistry, the kind of, uh, you know, long word that I use to describe my work um, and Pokemon, which is uh, a fun pet interest of mine. Um, and excited to get to talk to y'all about it. Very cool. Austin, honest question: Are you the Pokemon nerd of your department? Uh, funny enough, no. It's it's actually kind of great. Uh, <laughs> um, I like regularly see my lab mate uh, playing Showdown to like pass time um, in between his experiments, and um, uh, some of them I've convinced to hop back on the Pokemon Go train with me as well. So I am not the lone nor alone uh pokemon nerd in my department thankfully isn't pokemon go going through like a huge boycott thing though right now yes this happens pretty pretty regularly um i thought this with... one was a big one though like i thought like because i've seen it all over like reddit and twitter yeah and and for for good reason they're definitely um uh i would say screwing over uh like disabled and rural <laughs> players especially for um for like the certain specific type of experience they want to give and partly also like capitalism um it's like a freemium type game um and so some of the changes make sense with that but some of them are just kind of screwing over rural and disabled players kind of regardless of the the financials which is unfortunate and definitely represents some of their decisions they've made before uh that have like you know there was a, a big boycott last year uh when they were trying to um, change some of the mechanics uh, as part of like that's when we, over... quit, we quit playing last fall when like Keldeo was like ten dollars and I was like I am done. <laughs> I love Keldeo yeah. but not that much. <laughs> no, especially you know not when the the games cost sixty dollars. So yeah, the main main story games. Or I can just buy a Q plush for less. Yeah, which is pretty impressive <laughs> at this point given the cost of some of those plushies. Yeah, All right, ready to start, Doctor Ray. Yes. So, Austin, what can you tell us about your background and maybe a little bit about your current research as well? Yeah, um, I'm really happy to share my background. I think it's um, 
the the first thing is that I've been spending the last few five years here in Durham, where I'm calling in from, um, at Duke University, uh, where I study uh, microbe, mineral, and human interactions. I guess like in their implications for us um, and for for each other. Um, my my starting off work was uh, looking at mercury biogeochemistry. Um, continuing off of some undergrad research I did um, in a swamp in eastern Iowa measuring mercury concentrations and transformations. Um, but I sort of quickly diverged from that. Um, and now I isolate nanoparticles from bacteria that are relatively ubiquitous in the environment and that might interact with um, minerals and uh, other chemicals in the environment. Um, and then I also like to think about, uh, you know, what what sort of aspects of the institutions in which we're studying these things Im implicate and Im impact the research and the questions we kind of do. And so I've been um, digging into um, queer, feminist, uh, anti-colonial science studies to kind of dig at some of those questions and think really creatively about how we can interact with microbes and minerals in a way that uh, sort of forefronts solidarity. So let's figure out a little bit more about Austin. So uh, Austin, the reason why I think you were invited, one, was for your vast knowledge on science and engineering, but we also wanted to know what is your vast knowledge on Pokemon? Mm. <laughs> I It's definitely a, a special interest for me. Um, I, I grew up with it, watched the anime, um, growing up with the uh, the the video games as well. I was uh, a generation three child, um, very much. Uh, yeah, love, love water in part because of the Hoenn region. Um, uh, and then it kind of fell off for a little bit, um, but the pandemic really brought me back into it. Um, a colleague of mine um, was using it as a, a way to get outside um, and so it was like a social distancing kind of activity. Um, and that just fully pulled me uh, back into the, into the fandom and into the lore. Um, and I really, I, the lore is especially uh, tickles, tickles a, a special nerve for me. So I like the lore. And by that you mean Pokemon Go, right? Because that was what forced you to go outside? Yes, Pokemon Go. Yeah. I would have loved for you to say like Pokemon Red or something. You're walking around with your Game Boy. I mean, you might need to. You gotta get those link cables. Yes. <laughs> Just get extra long link cables, and you can use the natural sunlight. To, do you like to do like run screen. them like between homes, like they're like cans on a string? Oh my god! that. <laughs> New ideas. So, uh, what, do you have like a favorite feature in the franchise, or like a favorite Pokemon, so we can kind of set the stage? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, it's it's hard to have a favorite when there's so many great Pokemon. Um, I think the the quintessential one are like the Bug Steel types are some of my favorites. Um, so Fortress and Durant and Scizor are like high quality um, Pokemon to me, and so the dual typing is really cool. Sweet. So. Uh, let's get dive in a little bit more into this topic that we're talking about today of biogeochemistry. I, and I'm sure many, many other people, even though Austin and I have known each other for years, are wondering what is biogeochemistry? Could you explain it for us in a nutshell, Austin? Yeah, it's a good question. And definitely uh, something where it depends on the person 
that you ask what exactly they'll say uh, makes their work or their research biogeochemistry. Um, for me, it's it's really sitting at the intersection of uh, the three academic disciplines of like biology, chemistry, um, and geology, uh, and asking uh, research questions that kind of uh, require all of those different fields and different sets of tools. Um, but most academic disciplines are, are relatively arbitrary in where they draw the lines between them. Uh, so for me, for my work, um, I, I think about it in um, an environmental engineering context. Uh, how can um, processes that take place on a scale that involve uh, biological organisms, uh, minerals, and then um, chemicals, uh, molecules in the environment, um, how do they interact? Um, what kind of impacts do they have uh, on our lives? Um, and you know, how how can we work towards the benefit of all of the people involved in that? Is definitely where where I'm coming from. Um, and so, as an example of that, I've done work with uh, mercury in the environment. And so, mercury can exist as like an ion, as a molecule in water and soil. Um, it also has mineral forms um, that are are less uh, like available to to organisms, um, and also make really pretty colors uh, and inspire some names in Pokemon. So Cinnabar Island, um, where Blaine is a gym leader, uh, Cinnabar is named is a mineral is a name for a mineral of mercury sulfide, um, and it's a bright red oh. color and has been used yeah uh, as makeup, but then also serves as like, oh my god. Yeah, I know. Definitely don't use it as makeup um, or be very careful. <laughs> um, but that also has served as like the ore for, say, the, the liquid mercury that uh, is, is, should be phased out of thermometers, say, for example. Um, and then uh, partly why we care about mercury is that it can be transformed by bacteria uh, from inorganic um, into methylmercury. Um, and that is the stuff that um, can accumulate into fish and up the food chain and pose um, problems for uh, um, a wide variety of like animal health, including humans as like a neurotoxin in specific. And so mercury is really a contaminant where you have to at least pay attention to all of those different aspects, the, the biology of the microbes, um, the chemistry of mercury itself and how like kind of fluffy it is as an atom. Um, and then the minerals um, themselves can be uh, have a range of um, transformation potentials and also just other uses as well. So then like biogeochemistry, that's looking at all sorts of compounds as they break down like in the environment. And that includes things like like um, was it PFOAs, which is like like Teflon. Like that's a big thing, too. Right. Like, like what is what like that's a new field. What is that? Yeah. So that's like a little bit more outside of uh, my expertise in part because I tend to focus on metals uh, rather than organic compounds, you know, compounds mainly made of, of carbon in the environment. Um, but good friends of mine have uh, been doing a lot of work, and obviously it's been in the news with um, EPA drinking water, like suggestions and guidelines um, around PFOA, PFAS, um, and these general like compounds that are... Um, were are used in a variety of um industrial applications so the ones you brought up with teflon uh but then they're also used um 
as uh, flame retardants. Um, and so some of the most common actually uh, um, ways that that enters the environment is from um, firefighting drills around army bases. Um, and so we see really high levels of PFOAs and PFAS um, in relation to um, military activity in particular. Okay. And th- there's been like all sorts of like news about that too and lawsuits and everything going on. So yeah, this is like a, yeah. this is like a big thing too, like this whole field looking into how these uh, particles and such break into the environment. Yeah. And there's folks like thinking about um, like, can we uh, work with microbes in the environment to break them down, even though they're really hard to break down? Can we, you know, uh, either, you know, give them the enzymes that they need to break those those kinds of molecules, like break that really, really strong fluorine, hydrogen, uh, fluorine carbon bond? Um, or uh, can we teach them to like sequester them um, so that they uh, don't end up in food webs um, are, are the kinds of things that I would be thinking about with those. I just had this question because my mind was really blown by that Cinnabar Island tidbit. Um, do you think it's possible? Because my understanding is that mercury can be really damaging to organisms. Uh, do you think it's possible that could explain the glitch, the like the, the missing no found in Cinnabar Island? <laughs> Oh. it's so poisoned that it glitched i love it <laughs> yeah that's so funny i had not thought about that it definitely I, I feel like fits in regards to the um the way that mercury acts as a neurotoxin um messing with our minds a little bit with the glitch. oh my god when you put it like that it's like you're hallucinating uh you're hallucinating a, a missing no pokemon that's funny <laughs> <laughs> or is missing no hallucinating you <laughs> or is it just like Rome? You know, you get too much lead in your water and you all go crazy and the whole thing goes to crap. A quick follow up on uh, Mercury then, Austin. Like, why is it not good for humans to have Mercury? <laughs> for, our, for our younger <laughs> listeners who may not be familiar with the, the thermo- um, Mercury thermometers back in the day and the big exodus of it from the, from the industries. <laughs> yeah, so... We've known that mercury can be uh, neurotoxic for a while, similar to lead. There's there's writings, historical, um, about uh, sort of the, the kind of sickness um, that can come with, especially um, you think about Mad Hatter's disease as like a direct exposure to elemental mercury, um, which, you know, they were being exposed to like a lot. Like that would be like drinking a a full thermometer every day for a while. <laughs> a new um, unit, unit of measurement. <laughs> Anything to avoid metric. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, so that's one, one, one of the species of mercury, like chemical species that you might, you might be worried about and definitely like monitoring exposure as well, like monitoring its industrial uses. Like obviously mercury thermometers have been phased out. Um, uh, the the sort of other main industry where it's been phased out is uh, dentistry, where it was used in amalgamating fillings into teeth. Oh, geez. Um, which in reality wasn't your exposure to the mercury was as a patient was relatively low. In reality, what was happening is that a lot of it was ending up in wastewater streams. And then, um, yeah, and wastewater uh, goes through a, a wide, that's kind of bread and butter environmental engineering is wastewater treatment and um, easily methylated in the anaerobic cultures that are like really critical to 
um, uh, dealing with wastewater uh, in most um, municipal aspects. So, you know, that's the under other industry that uh, it got phased out of. Um, and so that, you know, the, the anaerobic cultures can methylate mercury. You can take that mercury atom and put a carbon and three hydrogens on it, and it makes it particularly neurotoxic. So like affecting your nervous system in really negative ways. Um, and that can accumulate into our food webs and into our fish. And that's one of the main exposure routes for environmental mercury contamination is um, through fishing and consumption of fish, especially fish that eat other fish. Does um does mercury cycle through tissues or will that fish, like if I took a mercury filled fish and put it in like a, a body of water that didn't have a bunch of mercury in it? Would it slowly cycle out of the fish? Or I've been asked this question recently, and I'm like, I do not know, actually. I know this one. Go for it. Yeah. I knew this one because uh, I grew up fishing. Oh. Uh, it's why you're not supposed to eat the uh, the, the carniv- carnivorous fish, right? Because the bigger fish have higher levels of mercury. Uh, and that's why, like, shark is dangerous because we've eaten shark before. Uh, and Haley was two at the time, I think. And I wasn't allowed to give it to her because there was a higher risk of her having mercury poisoning from the shark than like something like uh, tilapia because the shark has eaten so many other organisms with mercury, it builds up in its body. Is that correct? So there's some amount of like, expulsion. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. But you're, the uh, bioaccumulation is very true. So like moving up the, the food chain, you're more likely to, or with certain contaminants like methylmercury and other like fat-soluble um, uh, contaminants, you're more likely, you, the higher you go up the food chain, the more likely you are to get higher concentrations. Um, that being said, there's some amount of metabolism that happens with the mercury. Um, uh, so there's okay. some accumulation into the fat tissues, or it's, it's accumulated into fat tissues of the fish. Um, and so as they metabolize their fat, it can cycle through. Um, but we tend to see, uh, like between like a three to eight year lag in that uh, sort of oh. filtering through. And that, I should send you that citation, right? Cause it would be, yes, uh, yeah, there's, there's a particular paper where they uh, used isotopically like labeled mercury. So uh, atoms can have different numbers of neutrons. And so that can be really useful to track those uh, molecules in the environment. And so they, uh, put mercury um, that was labeled into um, experimental lakes in Canada um, and were able to track them. And it took about, they like were, they loaded for eight years and then they saw sort of an eight year decrease in the mercury. Um, mm. mm-hmm. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. So the answer is it only goes away if you stop adding more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, which is is really is really important because there's there's geogenic mercury, right? Like stuff will naturally occur and it'll naturally cycle, um, but then other um, activities as a result of uh, particularly like fossil fuel um, consumption. Yeah. So like coal fire energy production releases um, substantial amounts of mercury um, into the air, and it can travel around for like up to a year in the atmosphere and get deposited globally. So this right here, this entire concept was the reason I asked Ray to bring you in. Cause I was like, 
this right here, I need to ask about this because and we'll get to that at the end. But I have some questions where I'm like, wait, does this explain how this works? I think it does explain things. Yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, somewhat like the Pokemon universe reflecting our own universe, maybe by accident, but maybe, maybe not. Breaking biogeochemistry down into like its fundamental disciplines, biology, geology, and chemistry, like do you uh, do you have like a favorite organism, mineral or molecule or element? And why is it tardigrades? <laughs> Ooh, I um, I may be stepping in some controversy, but I, I'm a little more focused on prokaryotes. Um, eukaryotes are like a little too um, charismatic in my mind. Oh, um, wow. Although... although I'll, I'll immediately backtrack because my my answer was going to be um, there's these species of fungus. Uh, I was going to say slime molds. Um, well, uh, close. They're they're filamentous fungi um, that were isolated from these uh, coal mine um, acid drainage treatment reactors. Uh, basically, like digging a big pit um where you're getting runoff from coal mine um mining activity um where it's like really acidic and and harmful in a variety of different ways um and you pass it through um essentially like a hole in the ground um with a bunch of uh lime uh minerals uh but then also fungi grow in there um and they're capable of doing a lot of really cool chemistry um but in particular, in those treatment centers, uh, in those reactors, they'll uh, oxidize manganese um, into manganese oxides. Burnicite is one mineral that they produce. Um, uh, but then they also can do other cool things like aerobically reduce selenium, which is really powerful and useful um, so that you don't have to worry about doing another processing step with that. Um, and so they, uh, fungi are really cool how they can live in so many different places. Because they're just having a fun time. I had a yeah. feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to so, lie. Like, I love fungi. Actually, like uh, the D&D group I run uh, with one of our other hosts, uh, Brittany, the entire campaign plot right now is on uh, like fungus people and like mm -hmm. zombie fungus. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to give away anything in case she listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> So before we move on to our next segment, I have one last biogeochemistry question for you, Austin. Should bones be wet or dry? <laughs> I'm um, so confused by that question. Doctor bones? Huh? What a throwback. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> hopefully wet. Ooh, a, a fun a fun example of uh copaganda for us. Um <laughs> so bones <laughs> bones in our body should be wet <laughs> and i i realize i've learned that that is an unsettling thought for people um including our teeth like our teeth are bones and um are are their own um are like a really great example of biogeochemistry right because they're, they're calcium carbonate and we uh spend a lot of time thinking about our teeth and 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 I've done my own sort of direct action campaigns fighting for dental care. Mm. Um, and so, so teeth should also be wet, um, even though that is uh, an unsettling thought <laughs> for some people. <laughs> but, but if they're, you know, if they're outside, they can be dry, right? Like if you're just, you know, if you have a bone collection um, or you're using it as a tool for something, those should probably be dry. I guess, why is it bad if my teeth are dry? 
Because it means you have the munchies. <laughs> <laughs> that, and I, I think it's easier, um, like an easier way to get infection and you don't have that good microbial community. Your like mm. base microbial community needs to be wet and for it to be active and helpful. So that's, I think, part of it. So how about we talk about some Pokemon now? Do, 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 do. So, the... <laughs> so to start talking about Pokemon, where do your researcher eyes see biogeochemistry in the Pokemon universe, Austin? I think you touched on a little bit, but uh, this is free game now to talk about everything. Yeah. Um, ditto. <laughs> definitely, definitely ditto. I my my first thought is the the combo of uh, ground, rock, and steel. Um, in in particular, right? Like all Pokemon, if we take the 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 Pokemon universe at face value, their Pokemon are living organisms with biology. Um, and so the first thing I think about are those those Pokemon that either are are made up or like incorporate rocks and um, I guess ground and also metal into their into their biology pretty fundamentally. Um, some of them like need it to evolve, right? Like going from Scyther to Scizor, you like need that metal coat um, to 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 get that hard steel type. Um, at the same time, losing the flying type, um, in part because I imagine metals metals definitely heavier than um, like keratin uh, <laughs> for those bug structures. Um, so that's where my mind first goes, and I definitely love those are those are great great types in a, in a variety of different ways. Good shinies. Uh, if you like competitive, they're very competitively relevant in particular ground and steel. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of everything for everyone in, in the, the biogeochemistry of the Pokemon world in my eyes. Is there a difference between rock and ground? In, in the mechanics of the game, they're, they're super different. Um, oh, in real is, life. Sorry. But in, well, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, in real life, it's, it's, you know, I was, I've always been a little, like, befuddled, and I realized that I, like, didn't really, when I got back into Pokemon in, in my later years, I, like, was constantly mixing up, like, the type efficacy for rock versus ground, um, in part because I just didn't kind of logic through. I even, like, watched a couple of, like, YouTube videos, like, trying to, like, explain the lore behind it to see if I could get some some more grasp. And to me, it seems like they're thinking just in different scales. Like, ground is, like, all of the ground versus rock is just the specific mineral is, like, kind of how I understood it. And so that's why, like, if, you know, rock is super effective against flying type because you can throw a rock at something that's flying hit two birds with one stone which is so violent as like a phrase (laughs) (laughs) i've i've realized i've like talked to a birder about this because i was like unsettled by the violence of it of like killing two birds with one stone and they say uh putting two birds on one throne um which has fun like anti yeah it has like anti-monarchy vibes too which is like nice as well until you realize that birds are actually the rulers, and that's a problem. Um, you know, I remember hearing something kind of similar. I heard feed two birds with one scone as an alternative. Those birds get away from my scone. I bought that. I also have learned 
well, like, I don't know if this applies to all birds, but, like, you're not supposed to feed ducks bread. So no. I assume that you shouldn't feed other birds scones. You shouldn't feed any birds bread. No. So that's why I've come to the throne. <laughs> the throne. Because I would like to feed birds. So maybe we just have to... <laughs> I, I, well, in, the, like, the rock and ground thing, I want to go back to it. I always thought of it as, like, ground really being, like, soil. Uh, being more like the loose dirt and the rock being like more of the things that are compounded hard, which would explain like the, you know, because also like they're very similar in weaknesses and resistances. They're like very, they're similar, but then there's like the slight differences. And like those slight differences made me think like, okay, well they're related and steel too. Like, it's almost like that spectrum, like you said, where it's like ground being soiled, like it's soft, malleable, you can move it and push it. And then rock is a little harder, but you can still punch it pretty well and break it. And then steel, you're like, okay, I what am I? How, how, what do I do here? <laughs> I'm gonna hurt my hand. Like this is not good. So that's kind of how I always took it as like it was the ref, the level of like refinement almost because like they have overlapping features and traits. Well, I think that for me, like I live in San Francisco where we have a bunch of earthquakes. So I was like, you know, earthquakes can destroy cities which are made of metal and steel. So to me, that was always the logic behind. Yeah, it. that's the the like. Earthquakes can break up rocks um, in that physical weathering, and then can topple topple buildings. Um, is is uh, yeah, the some of the YouTube shorts that I watched explained to me? You heard it here. Earthquake beats everything but the birds, and Lando <laughs> T with its uh, levitate, which is why I just ordered my Lando T plush this morning. So you brought up a, an interesting point already, Austin, about how some of these like living Pokemon incorporate a lot of these like non-living aspects to them. And I think we have quite a few uh, Pokemon in mind to talk about with that. Uh, so maybe we can go through some of those if that's okay with you. Our questions of explaining them and how do they work and how does it make sense or how it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I think the first one that comes to mind is, or the most blatant one as well, is like the Geodude line and like the Onyx line where like, these are just rocks. And I think these are, the question I have when I look at them and like you bring up a good point about it is like, are these living creatures that look like rocks or are these living creatures that incorporate rocks or like these non-living things into their anatomy? What are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. I I think one way to think about it is maybe on a on a scale in reality like all or many many animals have you know minerals as part of their um as part of their like biology and physiology for us that's our bones and our teeth um but you could imagine that like there's a scale of like increasing or decreasing where um there's some bacteria maybe that like never interact with a mineral and some that might say use a mineral to breathe um and then there's us with our bones and you know the maybe the next step is is onyx and geodude where they're mostly bone um and and maybe maybe minerals form their uh fundamental um biological reactions and and uh processes um which that's a little bit more sci-fi um but perhaps they're just in on the inside um slimy and soft like us on the outside i hope so <laughs> i did want to add a few things really quick because i've had thoughts about this a lot actually um and we talked about this in the last lives at lessons actually we talked about uh onyx specifically so i always kind of thought of it like like you say like the biology aspect here 
um, almost kind of like skin defects. Like when you think of people, like when there's uh, abnormalities where skins can become hard as like, uh, you know, rock and stone, almost with the calcium buildup. Uh, that was one of my thoughts, uh, almost like, like, you know, the difference between like a rhino hide and like, you know, your, uh, your uh, lion, like the two different, like just because of the way that the substances work within that biology. Um, but that's how I got, I always thought of it. I was like, okay, well, onyx is clearly just a snake with like stupid rocky skin. Also a pun on, on you know, the, the rock python. The other thing I always kind of thought about is knowing the history and culture uh, of where the games were developed. Uh, specifically where you, when I think of, uh, you know, not just like Shinto beliefs in a lot of the folk culture in J uh, Japan dealing with, you know, animism or a lot of folklore restaurant things around yokai. And yes, I know not all yokai are actually Japanese. A good majority of them were created by a French writer. Weird fact. Uh, but like, I always thought like that kind of played into it too, this entire culture and concepts of like how living things and how earth and like natural things were viewed as almost having like, you know, an essence um, to me, like that's kind of, it always made sense to me that that was kind of a connection here. It's yeah. It's relatively arbitrary to decide that minerals are minerals in a fixed chemical lattice are that different from, um, like organic carbon, um, as, as living is, is a relatively arbitrary, um, and, uh, definitely like tied up in, um, from my perspective in like western european academic culture um and definitely the the whole just separation of people from nature is uh very much an example of that i guess thinking about like some of the pokemon that like consume non-living things uh like thinking about like that connection there like sableye uh i think it eats like gems right and its eyes are gems maybe maybe not um aaron you know like the agron aaron line they literally their body is steel but they eat like iron <laughs> I, and like, you know, uh, like to me, it's like, well, like, I don't know, like I have questions about like how, like, how does that interact with like a living organism eating those like minerals? Yeah, it's not too different from us and our need for salt um, and, and our uh, food tasting a lot better when it's properly seasoned with salt. Um, but like further further beyond like just humans um and maybe a little bit closer to the the pokemon are um bacteria that use the merc uh that use metals and minerals um as like the same as we use oxygen and water to breathe and to um have metabolism so they'll need to kind of uh either nuzzle up close to to say in particular, one example is an iron-bearing mineral, um, sort of, you know, either chemically, chemically kind of nibble on it to to release some of that iron to give it some electrons, give the mineral some electrons, so that then they can use that iron um, in the way that we use oxygen um, to breathe and metabolize. Um, and so, to me, that's what I. I maybe imagine that Sableye is doing is that um, it's using those crystals. Maybe it's the kind of reverse of our redox chemistry in in, um, in our universe, um, and they can use that those those crystals, those uh, the potential energy locked up in that crystal lattice um, to um, be the way that, like, say, there is energy stored in. Um, uh, fats and proteins that we can access 
Um, and so I imagine that that might be where, say, like, you know, everything from mega stones, Z crystals to um, Dynamax to now terrestrialization in this most recent generation, that's where maybe that energy is coming from is uh, what I see as like a biogeochemical interaction um, between uh, these, you know, high energy materials in, um, in our Pokemon universe um, and some of these like amazing phenomena um, that Pokemon then can take advantage of and people in Pokemon together. Because you need, as is a theme throughout the games, you, you need friendship to be able to access this extreme power. I love that you said this because like this was the entire reason I wanted to talk about this and have you here. Because uh, we've compiled documents of people like we knew that were like, oh, these are Pokemon fans that we all know that are researchers. And I was like, I, when I saw Ray write you on the list, I was like, oh, my God, I have to ask this. And I think it ties into what you're talking about with like Mercury research, too. Um, like, how could we use this concept, especially talking about like the biogeochemistry and the interactions between minerals and organisms and how could we use that to explain things? Like for me, like this makes sense when I think about like dynamaxing, terrestrializing and mega evolutions. Um, I guess Z moves in a way too, but like the idea of that, like there's some sort of something there, it builds up, you do something big and then it goes away. Almost like the mercury levels, like we were talking about earlier. Like how would you, how would you use that to explain those? Hmm. Yeah. It's a great question. Like, (laughs) and and I, (laughs) I see, I, to me, it's, it's, it's maybe like a really, like a useful metaphor for, like catalysis as a process in the environment. Um, so you can like have these, these minerals that might have certain chemistries um, and, and they might be relatively stable in whatever conditions that they're in. Um, but you often can have either more stable or um, potentially slightly different um, chemical formulations Um uh, but you need something to uh, lower the activation energy for that process, right? The if we're thinking thermodynamically, um, and so maybe that's kind of how I see it in the Pokemon universe. That you you need friendship, a Pokemon, usually a person to to train that Pokemon, um, and whatever that mineral or crystal that has that energy um, to you use that friendship and and those Pokemon to actually release that energy into the environment through, uh, you know, a Z move or um, Dynamaxine um, or the terrestrialization. Another way to think about it is, is more the reverse that the, the crystal is help helping facilitate that transformation of Pokemon in person. Um, that maybe the energy is within us all the time. And, um, maybe that those minerals are kind of the active site that uh, help transfer that energy between the person and the Pokemon. Um, As we can kind of see in the environment as well, where there are um, minerals that can say facilitate the breaking down of um, organic compounds, like the PFOAs that you talked about earlier. Yeah. Like, cause it it made a lot of sense to me. Like the idea that like it builds up and you do something great and then like, you know, Oh, my Pikachu is gigantic now. And then like, that chemical or that substance is just gone because you used it you consumed it essentially that was kind of the way i took it as yeah you know Austin, thank you so much for that great answer about terrestrialization which i know madison was super happy to discuss to discuss with you 
Um, so I do think it's super cool how we've just been discussing like the way that all these animals and their Pokemon analogs can really break down and consume materials. And we've seen that throughout the Pokemon universe that they can also break down pollutants. So I'd like to bring up this Pokemon called Shaman, which is like this really cute flower covered grass type hedgehog, which, you know, it's, it's adorable, even though I personally really dislike hedgehogs, which is honestly a story for another day. <laughs> um, I want to refer to its Pokedex entry, which says that it can dissolve toxins in the air to instantly transform ruined land into a lush field of flowers. And I was wondering, given your background in geochemistry, if you have any thoughts as to how shaman could chemically or like biologically do this? It's a good question. I think it kind of reflects some of what we see in science about uh, plants as um, natural uh, decontamination of air pollutants. Although there's there's some skepticism about about that. Um, in part, you know, where what happens to the depending on the contaminant, it just then goes into the plant. And then what happens? I think probably what makes shaman special is that um, it can not only take in some of these contaminants, sometimes, you know, which might might want to do that, right? Like might um, naturally absorb to um, plants and animals uh, in, in a setting, um, like certain, say, species of mercury when released in the air, into the air can then, um, say, absorb to plants and into um, into leaves. Um, I think probably what's the the thing that makes shaman special is uh, being able to then transform them into hopefully something uh, non toxic. So if that's that's a if that's a metal that's in the air, it's you know taking it to its least bioavailable form um, with using its Pokemon powers. Um, or, you know, um, having the, the kinds of cellular mechanisms to, um, say, take an organic contaminant and turn it into something um, more innocuous, like uh, the proteins that make up its body. Nice. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, so thank you for talking to us about, like, you know, what Shaman can do. Um, and I want to turn to another Pokemon, Suicune, which I just want to say, I called it Suicine until, like, a year ago because like I really loved Pokemon as a kid but I didn't have any friends to talk about it with in real life I guess um but in his Pokedex, in his Pokedex entry it says that it has the ability to purify toxic water so basically I'm wondering if you could comment on how you know these real world analogs could inform this Pokemon's ability to essentially fight pollution <laughs> so the most recent example that I saw in in the anime of Suicune can like decontaminating water um it was it was in the anime the I think the the journeys master's journeys are one of the ultimate journeys potentially, um, and it's it goes Suicune, um, and uh, the Grimer in the Cerise lab had been accidentally um, uh, contaminating the water with itself um, <laughs> upstream and just uh, causing just yeah un- it really really sad because like. No, no, not at all. And and grammar, if anything, is a result of us. Um, is is a <laughs> um, uh, definitely a metaphor for the the activated sludge that we use to process wastewater. Um, um, but you know, grammar wasn't just didn't know that it was contaminating. And so um, I, what I imagine, you know, when when Suicune comes and helps uh, deal with both that the contamination and then some of the the downstream effects that that happened um, in that episode. Um, 
it it just walked in the water and it cleared up, um, which is very like Pokemon magic. Um, but there's a couple of things that I I think could could be um, some that are really well documented um, and some that are maybe a little bit more out there ideas. Uh, the first one is it it could just release um, a compound into the water um, that accelerates coagulation, so the process of um, these bacteria, say if they're bacteria contaminants, um, makes it more likely that they'll hit each other and then settle out. Um, and that's used in drinking water treatment really often. Nice. Um, okay. So basically you're saying it'll kind of coagulate in the water or it'll crash out. It'll, basically it'll kind of bind to itself and then it won't be toxic anymore in the actual water. Is that what I'm hearing? That or it'll it could settle down into the into the dirt where it's of the the other bacteria, um, its other friends mm, are. Okay, so as long as you just don't like drink the dirt, then you're fine. G- generally, generally you don't want to eat dirt. Um, uh, just just general, although <laughs> although like it's very tempting. Yeah. You also don't want to drink dirty water because that's like killed more people in the Civil War than like actual bullets. That, that's Suicune's actual job. He just he just makes sure that no one's getting dysentery. It, you you answered that in an interesting way, Austin. Because I always one way I was thinking about it is like Suicune like absorb maybe absorbing the toxins or something. But like I watched just, uh, the Celebi movie and like I think the way it works is like it touched its nose to the water and it like dispersed out from Suicune as opposed to like culminating to Suicune. So I like I like your analysis. Yeah. Do you think it's ancestor? I... Pokemon can do the same thing, or it hasn't learned that yet. I forgot what it's called. Walking Wake. Yes. The paradox one. Yes. Oh yeah. I. <laughs> it's funny because there's a little bit of contention about the origins of Suicune because there was a Generations episode where they implied that the the legendary beasts were um, reincarnated uh, e- uh, Jolteon, Flareon, and Vaporeon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, and, and the, the connection is there. I can see that. Um, but then even, you know, did the, did the paradox Pokemon come first or did they, are they imaginations of the, um, Paldean people, um, is a, is I think an open question in the, in the Pokemon theoretical, the, the, the Pokemon theory world, um, the Poke academics. I mean, just, just apply right multiverse theory and then everything works. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> multiverse, that's the answer. Okay. I guess this is everyone's favorite question. I don't know. I was I was enjoying talking about Teflon, but <laughs> if you could add any, uh, create any Pokemon to be in the Pokemon world, what would it be? I think I want some bacterial representation in the Pokemon universe. Um you know, we got close with the the Reuniclus line, um, based on like cell mitosis um, or meiosis. Um, but I think it it could be cool to have, uh, uh, like in particular, the diatoms are these unicellular um, microorganisms that have calcium carbonate shelves, um, and so it could be uh, a fossil Pokemon too. Um, is is which I would love to see more fossil Pokemon going forward. Um, I was a little sad about the lack of fossil Pokemon in um, in Scarlet and Violet. Those are my uh, five year old's favorites. 
she has i just got her arch in today since it the whole <clears throat> university sitting cuties came out so like those are her favorites like all the fossils like she's got her uh tyrant she's got her amora she's got her uh what's the weird one uh vic uh the, the one that's like a stegosaurus tail with a raptor on it the, the i i never internalized the Dracosult. that's it Dracosult. Yeah. yeah that's like one of her absolute favorites i thought austin was gonna say like a mercury variant of muck or something that like lives in the water and infects a bunch of fish or something Isn't like muck that already a mercury variant is it i actually don't know much about muck i think muck is just bacteria so I think that's all the questions we had for you, Austin. This was amazing. I think I learned a lot more than um, than I learned in just casually asking you questions when we'd see each other in person back in the day. But uh, I learned a lot about biogeochemistry. And I think I speak for my co-hosts when I say we learned a lot and it was a great time. So closing thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. We learned a lot along the way. Yes. Socials for people to follow, people where we can check out your work and stuff like that or... Should we just wait for you to be a Nobel laureate soon, <laughs> soon? Definitely uh, keep a lookout for my lab website when I um, start my new job in the fall. Um, my socials have been pretty quiet and on private because of my job search. So I'm, I'm thinking about keeping it that way going forward. Um, but definitely um, uh, look, look me up in Google Scholar and cite me. That would be great. <laughs> Add you on LinkedIn, build your network. On MySpace. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Are you too young for that? <laughs> Kristen's like, oh, oh, oh my. They're both, they're both too young for that. <laughs> you like six? I was like 12. You were I 12, guess. exactly. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> This is great, Austin. So hopefully we'll be seeing you around more and maybe we'll have you back on to talk more about uh, some biogeochemistry or other uh, related topics. So uh, with that, uh, thank you all for listening and uh, be on the lookout for more episodes to come. Bye, thank guys. you. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks.